All righty. Hey, all of you onliners and in-housers, welcome. Welcome in this place. We are working through the seven letters that Jesus dictated to John all the way back in the first century. And Jesus wanted these letters shared because some, without some redirection, these churches would continue to veer off course. The second law of thermodynamics states that something will degenerate if there is no outside force to spawn towards a constructive direction. So without God's intervention, we as a church, both collectively and individually, will naturally go our own way and be led astray. That's why we meet together every week. That's why we break bread to remember again the sacrifice and the resurrection. That's why we join small groups and we text and we pray for one another and read the Bible together daily. It's just so easy to get off track. And even though this church that Jesus was writing to is located in the smallest of the seven cities that he addressed, the churches in those cities, this is the longest letter that he wrote to perhaps the most corrupt of all seven churches. Thyatira served as a military defense for the city of Pergamum that we talked about last week. It housed a Roman garrison of soldiers to help defend and delay any attack that would be made on Pergamum. It was a thriving trade city because of its location between Pergamum and Sardis, a prosperous commercial center of merchants, manufacturing, carpenters, dyers, tanners, weavers, tent makers, peddling wares like wool, linen, apparel, leather work, bronze work, and on the list would go. Now, because of all of the trade, guilds, played a major role in the city, and a guild was sort of like a union, only a whole lot more. They not only wielded political influence, but the social, religious, and industrial structures in the city were built upon these guilds. Every skilled trade had its own guild. And Thyatira, the Bible scholars tell us, had more guilds than any other city in all of Asia Minor. So if you wanted to successfully work in a given trade in Thyatira, you had to join the corresponding guild, and every guild had its patron god, and guild members were expected to honor and worship this pagan god of that particular guild. And several times a year, the guilds would throw these parties involving what they called worship practices that included eating meat sacrificed to idols a lot of excessive drinking, and then they would be participating in sexual immorality. So, you're a citizen in Thyatira. You come to hear the good news about Jesus, and you believe. So you put your trust in him, and you become a Jesus follower, but then you start getting pressure from the guild that you're a part of to continue attending these sinful gatherings. And to not show would mean to run the risk of being expelled from your guild and you'd lose your work. So along comes an influential leader in this new budding church in Thyatira who teaches 
that guild membership and participation in all of those sinful practices does not conflict with your allegiance to Christ. You're kidding me. I could keep doing all that stuff and still follow Jesus? And for years, this compromise goes on with the guild's evil practices, allowing this teaching to go on in the church and looking over all of this terrible behavior. So the church in Thyatira, it continues to grow and even thrive, but it's got this cancer inside of it. And because Jesus loves us so much and has so much mercy for us, he refuses to silently stand by and stay nothing while this church just spins out of control. So Jesus speaks, and John records. We're in Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Okay, let's break this down. It's the first and only time that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God in these seven letters. He wanted the citizens of Thyatira to know that he is not one of the many sons of the many gods of the many guilds, that he's the one true only begotten son of the one true most high God. His eyes of fire and feet of bronze would communicate that nothing can fall outside of his sight or strength. He notices all and acts with all power and righteousness and judgment. Now, with his credentials firmly established in this military town of blue-collar workers, he then commends the church for their love and faith, their service, their perseverance, and their growth. You see, from all outward appearances, this Thyatira church was a healthy church, busy about the Lord's work. And if the letter would have ended there, it would have been the ultimate compliment but it didn't end there. Jesus continues, verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, She's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Whoa. <laughs> I'm not sure a stronger word of confrontation has ever been spoken by our Lord Jesus. Jesus did commend the Thyatira church, but this word 
that he had against them quickly overshadowed, overshadowed any commendation. There's a couple of things at play here. One was the reminder that the greatest enemy any of us face is always within us. This false teaching was within the church. It was among the church leaders. It was being promoted. On January the 27th, 1838, young Abraham Lincoln was 29 years old, a young politician, and he offered this warning for our country and the danger that it faces. Look at this. At what point shall we expect the approach of danger? Shall we expect some transatlantic military giant to step across the ocean and crush us at a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined with all the treasure of the earth, our own accepted, in their military chest with a Bonaparte for a commander could not by force take a drink from the Ohio or make a track on the Blue Ridge in the trail of a thousand years. <laughs> Don't you love the way he writes? At what point is the approach of danger to be expected? If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all the time or die by suicide. In other words, the greatest enemy that any of us faces is always that which lies within. The church at Thyatira seemed strong and robust, but there existed a disease within. All right, another thing at play. It's something that brings out a holy rage in our Lord Christ. It's any time something evil is called good. Oh, this really brings out a holy indignation in our Lord for us to refer to anything evil as why well, that that's a good thing. Oh, there was a woman in Thyatira, a self-proclaimed prophet. The scholars really don't think her name was Jezebel. They think Jesus called her Jezebel so that they would know she is compared to the most evil woman in all of the old law. She mis misled church members into idolatry and sexual immorality. She was preaching something evil and wrong as good and appropriate. Another time Jesus' words were equally harsh was when some teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem and they said that Jesus was possessed by the power of demons and was driving out demons by that dark power. They attributed to evil forces something that was good. Driving demons out of somebody, that's good. <laughs> And so these teachers were crediting evil forces with doing something good. And it brought a response from Christ that he spoke only one time. You know what he said? There is an unforgivable sin. Pick up the text. This is Mark 3. Look. And the teachers of the law who came down for Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. Then Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan 
drive out Satan. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven of all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. God will not tolerate calling something evil. Well, that's good. He will not tolerate that. Now, I know the word tolerate is a hot topic in our culture right now. In fact, some teach that tolerance is a virtue and intolerance is a vice. Maybe what we need to do is think a little bit more about the definition of that word, tolerance. What tolerance used to mean was accepting one another even if we have disagreement. But in some circles today, tolerance is being taught unconditional approval. But there's a big difference between accepting while disagreeing and just approving. Think about it. Jesus accepts any of us who come to him, but he approves of no one's unholy behavior, right? He doesn't just say, oh, you're doing that, that terrible, simple behavior. Well, just keep doing that and come follow me. That's not Jesus. He wants you to follow him. But the unholy behavior, think about it. When the woman was caught in adultery and rudely thrown in front of Jesus, what was his response? Acceptance and forgiveness. But what did he say? Okay, let's leave this life of sin behind. It's just like what we talked about last week. It's starting this process of repentance where we turn toward Jesus and we turn away from sin instead of what we've been doing, the opposite. All of us have areas in our life that we leave no room for tolerance. Smoking in a propane factory. We don't tolerate it. <laughs> Eating food with poison in it. Don't, not going to tolerate it. We followed our GPS one time when we were in Orlando, years back, trying to find Disney World, and it led us to the backyard of some old ranch. Following a GPS that doesn't work, no, nope, not going to tolerate it. It's the same with Jesus. He won't tolerate sexual immorality and idolatry as something that's good. Won't tolerate it. He wants his church to point toward holiness, toward purity. And when we get off track, he says, all right, let's get on this bus called repentance. Let's start that process of turning the other way. And when a leader of the church would dare in his body teach or preach something that people can follow Christ while worshiping other things and indulging in sexual misconduct because those things are good? Jesus says, no, 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 I, I, I'm not tolerating that. There must be a change. The remedy is repentance. You guys, if I'm one day diagnosed with diabetes, am I counting on that doctor giving me a fungal cream to fix it? If I get a cold, do I want him to treat it with chemotherapy? We want our cure to fit the ailment, to cure the problem. And the only person that knows any cure to sin is Jesus. And we've got to listen to him. Now, you guys, hear me out. When we get a strong word like this word, 
to the church at Thyatira. We, we do well to take it to heart. It's not just this church that was back in the first century that got off track. No, no, no. Let's see what he may be saying to us. You see, idolatry isn't just bowing down to wooden stone images anymore. Idolatry is ignoring the truth about God as he's given it about himself. It's substituting something that we want to think about God that we find more likable or manageable. You know, like the good guy God. You know what I'm talking about? The good guy God, the, the God who says, I'm not interested in condemnation or judgment or restrictions or rules or absolutes. All I have for you is mercy and forgiveness. You just keep participating in what you want to do, and I'll just look the other way. You know, let's, let's have the good guy God, shall we? Or what about the genie God? The genie God that, that gives me everything that I ever wish for and then provides me with a pain-free life. I, I like the genie God. Do you? You see, the problem is when we bow down to gods of our own thinking, of our own image, do you know what that's the definition of? Idolatry. That's idolatry. And so we need to repent of that. Father, remove any idolatry from my life. And then think about this. The immorality isn't limited just to sexual inappropriateness. definitely includes that. But immorality includes immoderate pleasures. Okay, too much drinking, too much spending, too much eating, too much sleeping, too much entertaining. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. We listen to him and we repent. You guys, Jesus gave his credentials at the beginning of this letter. I'm the son of God. And he commends them for their love and their faith and their perseverance and their service and their growth. And he confronts them with allowing this false teaching to exist in the church toward idolatry and immorality. And then, and then the end of the letter. He comforts them. Look, it starts in verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I'll not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Interesting how each of these letters so far has ended. To the church at Ephesus, he comforts them by telling them that one day they will eat from the tree of life. And to the church at Smyrna, his comfort is knowing that they will one day wear the crown of life. And last week, to the church at Pergamum, they would receive the hidden manna and the white stone with their name inscribed on it. And for the church at Thyatira, they will share with Christ in the ruling of nations. The full establishment of the kingdom of God after Christ's return will require all the forces of evil to be subdued. We will reign with Christ. And then, if that isn't enough, 
To top it all off, he says, I'm going to use my authority to give you the morning star. The morning star, you ask? What is that? I'm glad you asked. He tells us the answer in the end of the vision. Chapter 22 and verse 16. I am the root, Jesus says, of the offspring of David and the bright morning star. We will reign with Christ. We will be his. And he will be ours. Many years ago in the olden days, a preacher closed the service at a country church late at night. And he started to walk quite a distance to the home where he would be staying. This was before the days of electricity and flashlights. And he had no lantern. Well, a farmer saw his predicament, and he gave him a flaming pine torch. But the preacher was a little leery and said, well, well, well farmer, what if, what if this torch goes out? And the farmer replied, it'll see you home. And the preacher said, well, what if the wind blows it out? And the farmer had the same reply, it'll see you home. And then the preacher said, well, what if rain puts it out? And now the farmer spoke with finality because he knew the enduring quality of a pine torch. And he said, it will see you home. And it did. Jesus intends for his words not to be a burden. For his words to provide a comfort, a direction. And you know the best part about his words? They'll see his home. They'll see his home. Father, remind us that you're the captain. Remind us that our eyes are on you. Let us not be tempted to see your words as a burden and a killjoy, but as life and direction. Speak to us as we sing this song of following you. Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want you to remain seated. Let them sing over you on this.